It's that feeling people have when they come to you, that feeling people have from the minute they hit your website, that feeling people have from the minute they come and speak to a receptionist. You are listening to Australia's Tax News Podcast. Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 236 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. Before we start, I just wanted to give you a quick COVID-19 update. No draft bills are out yet. So all we have so far at 7am of the 24th of March 2020, all we have so far are announcements, many of them. A lot more measures have been announced since we last spoke with Bob Deutsch on the 18th of March 2020. So to give you a quick summary of the announcements that have come up since then, three big changes since we last spoke. The first change is that the 50% cash boost of pay-as-you-go withholding, first limited to 25,000 when we last spoke, has now been increased to 50,000 and can be claimed twice, meaning we are looking at a cash boost of up to $100,000 per business. This amount will automatically be credited based on the W-2, the pay-as-you-go withholding, your client's list in their March and June BAS. The minimum payment has also been increased from $2,000 to now $10,000, so twice $10,000, meaning $20,000 as a minimum. The first wave of payments are expected for the 28th of April and the second wave for the 21st of June this year, of course, 2020. Now, 28th of April and 21st of June, of course, is still very far away if you don't know how to make payroll this week. But at least it means that something is coming. This is probably the one measure that will help our clients the most. But no details are out yet. We don't have... A draft bill yet. The big issue at the moment is that so far there is nothing to help sole traders and partnerships who operate without employees. So that will hopefully change. I'm confident that this will change. So far our tax law has always tried to apply measures without limiting them to a certain structure. Of course there are exceptions I know like the R&D tax incentive but I'm pretty sure that in the current crisis, sole traders and partnerships who don't employ won't go empty. The second big change is around access to finance for small business. You probably already know about the 90 billion funding facility for banks with the directive to lend this to SMEs. But there's also now a 15 billion funding facility to non-bank lenders, also earmarked for small business. And the government has pledged to guarantee 50% of new credit to SMEs. And the lenders don't need to comply with their responsible lending obligations. And that exemption will probably give small business owners a quicker and more efficient access to cash. And the rate cuts will make it hopefully more affordable to get finance as well. And then the third change, which is still a step in the right direction, but probably not and is helpful, but could go further. The third change is that on Friday, the Australian Banking Association announced that Australian banks won't press for repayment of small business loans. And that is likely to apply to 100 billion in existing loans. 
But the question, of course, is what happens to the interest? If the interest keeps accruing, then, of course, the problem will only get worse. But at least it is a first step in the right direction to not press for repayments. But all up, these three changes will probably help our clients the most. The other measures that will help and which we already touched on last week is especially the option to ask for four months deferral of most tax obligations. That, I think, will take a lot of stress away from your clients. And then, of course, also the um, reduced GIC, the reduced general interest charge that the ATO has promised. And also, I can imagine that the ATO will be very forgiving with GIC and penalties when it comes to actually starting to pay later this year or next year. And the other thing that really will help, I think, is the reduction of the pay-as-you-go installment for this quarter to nil and to the option to request a refund of installments paid for the September and December quarter. We need to apply for that on behalf of our clients, but this also will bring money back into the coffers. And then there's also the payroll tax waiver for next quarter and the increase of the payroll tax threshold to 1 million from the 1st of July. That applies to New South Wales. But from what I've seen and heard, the other states and territories do something pretty close to it. So far, we only have announcements, no draft bills, no past legislation, and I will keep you updated as soon as this comes through. And that will hopefully be soon. Just quickly, as before, the instant asset write-off of 150,000 until June this year, as well as the investment incentives, the 50% immediate deduction in the first year for any asset purchased until June next year. All that will probably only help businesses who still have cash, and that probably won't be many for long and then of course there's also the 50% wage subsidy for apprentice and trainee wages until September this year but again of course this only helps businesses who employ apprentices which are many but of course not a large percentage of small business in Australia. So that is just a quick update of what is in the pipeline as of this morning 24th of March 2020 at 7am I will bring you more in a proper bonus episode, probably on Thursday or Friday. Our usual publication schedule of three episodes per week for Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday will probably slightly change and we will probably send you more current updates as the situation evolves and less scheduled material. But all this is in the air at the moment, so please bear it out with me. But so now back to the actual topic of our episode for today, which of course feels completely irrelevant right now as we deal with the crisis of our life. But hopefully over the coming weeks, it might help you as you regroup and start looking ahead. Over the next six episodes, we will start a new series about branding and marketing, covering a wide range of topics. The aim is to help you grow your practice, because attracting and converting clients is at least as hard as working out a technical tax issue, if not much harder. And of course, if you're working in a mid-tier or top-tier firm, then you don't need to worry about marketing and everything else around that. You have an entire marketing department or at least a marketing expert who takes care of all that. But when you run your own practice and a tight cash flow that doesn't leave room yet for marketing experts and agencies, 
then you have to work all this out on your own. And so the next six episodes are an attempt to help you with that. Melissa Donnelly of Affinity is an experienced marketing expert who kindly agreed to help you. The question to Melissa is, how do you work out what you stand for? What do you put on the table when your clients ask, why should I engage with you? I think it's really difficult mm. to say, what do I stand for? I have no idea what I stand yeah, for. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's a real it's a real art. It's probably where I work most often in my business. I think this one really comes down to why is your brand important? Because again, most people will define a brand as their logo, their company name, the colours they've got on the wall. And it's not. It's actually about the way people feel about you when they deal with you. So if you're not clear about why people should deal with you, you're not going to have a clear mm. brand. And I think, again, in professional services, it's really easy to go, we're called Smith, Smith and Weston, and that's who you're dealing with. But really, you know, what's the brand? So I think that's really what that one is about, is what's a brand and why is it important to you as a professional services yeah. firm? But the problem is, I have no idea what I stand for. I, I can't say why my brand is important. I don't even think that my brand is important. And I can imagine... Many others feel humble like that. If you go back and say, and I put it this simply, what gets you out of bed every day? So in your instance, why did you set up this podcast? Why? What drives you to get out of bed and come and chat to people like me? What's the purpose in that? And if you can work that out, from there you start to go, well, if this is why I get out of bed now, why am I going to get out of bed in one year, two years, five years? And then you start to build a purpose. So, So even if I look at law firm clients that I've had, we can discuss purpose with them. And for one of them, they love business. That's their purpose. That's what drives them. It's not the law necessarily. That's the product. But their purpose is they love business. So they really want to, on behalf of their clients, be successful in the business they're conducting for their clients so their clients can be successful in business. It's as simple as that. So I I can imagine... Most accountants have something very similar to that. I think most accountants have a desire to help. They like their clients. They really want to help their clients. They want to see their clients thrive. Mm. And then it gets really difficult. How do I distinguish myself? Exactly. So again, if you think about, um, and in fact, zero is probably a good example for this particular industry. If you think about zero, they do software. They do accounting and business software. It's no more beautiful, less beautiful than that. But they talk about beautiful business and accounting software. Let's do business beautifully. And even though people may feel that way, I think Zero have had that prime mover advantage because they said it. They enunciated it. They've got a very different color palette. And again, this is starting back. A I few think they years. just changed it from blue to green. Zero. Yeah. Oh, they may have because they've just absorbed Tubdoc as well. So they're, you know, that's again for them. That links beautifully with their purpose because it's still about beautiful business. So I can now, and I'm a customer of both, I can now have HubDoc completely seamlessly lined up in zero. And I could before, it's going to be better now. And that's a work of art as far as I'm concerned, because I'm not a business and accounting software person. I just need it to work for my business. So 
if you think about what drives zero, if you just went back and said, well, we just do software, well, there's a million people who do business and accounting software and they can look very bland. Zero really brought it down to a human element because beauty is a human thing. We react to beauty in a human way. So again, what's the feeling you have when you interact with zero? They want you to feel it's a beautiful thing. Leave it with us. We've got this. You run off and run your business. So no matter how big or small, we've all got a reason for being. We've all got a reason for being in business and getting out of bed. And I know we all have a reason, mm. but I think for most of us, the reason is quite similar. It may be, but then if you think about how that's interpreted, so there's a really innovative accounting firm um, I know of in Brisbane. In fact, the principal of it is, is a, on the board of one of my other clients. And you walk into the reception of that firm and it feels different. It's very open plan. There's no traditional colouring that you would associate with, with more traditional firms, your burgundies, your greys. It's light, it's airy. There's a coffee machine right at reception. They often have muffins and food right at reception. They've got young interns at reception. So from the minute as a client you enter that experience, you get a sense of a company that feels different. So do they offer traditional accounting services? Yes, they do. Are they offering some quite innovative ways of delivering those services? Yes, they are. Do I as a client necessarily know what that innovation's like? Maybe not, but I get the sense of innovation. I can feel it. So their meeting rooms, for instance, they have tech built into their meeting rooms. They have cool stuff. The walls of the meeting rooms have got paint on them that's whiteboard paint. So you can actually be interacting during the meeting. It's got quite a different feeling to it, different experience to it. So these are the ways they're setting themselves apart. And one of the things I would say, if you go to their website, they're very clear. They want all of you. That's their purpose. They want all of you. They don't want a bit of your business. They don't want just your financial planning. They don't want just your tax. They want all of you. And their business process is about chasing that, but not in a way that makes you feel threatened. So I kind of sit on both sides with them because I know them as a business, but I also know them as a, as a client. So they've built in advisory. They've built in a whole lot of stuff, which again is all spaces that smart accounting firms are going into outside of that transactional compliance-based work, but they've packaged it in a way that feels different and sets them apart and innovation just screams out of that company. You may be at a base level of what you do, the expertise you bring, you may be the same as everyone else, but it's, it's how you enunciate it, it's how you package it. And then it's how you wrap that up in a brand. Firms to me that stand outside the norm again, you know, the tradition's been in a lot of professional services firms, you name the firm after the, the founding partners. So I've got a, a former client, Redchip. So when that law firm was established 20-something years ago, they didn't come out with the name of the guys that put the firm together. In fact, there was one. It's called Redchip. So immediately stands apart, immediately stands apart. And the identity, the colours, the experience from the minute you used to get into reception right through to this day. I mean, this is a firm that has got a user experience manager. How many firms have those? And that's a very new area that's just coming into to existence really. So they're right at the cutting edge of that. And what that person's job is to manage your experience as a prospect or client 
right through. So just setting themselves apart from everyone else. And it is cluttered and crowded. I do appreciate it. It's a, it's a tough market to stand aside in. So that's why you've got to be really, really clear about why you get out of bed. Your staff have to be clear about why they get out of bed. And then you've got to think about how can we package this in a way that sets us apart. Yes. I just had a light bulb moment and that is when you approach the question of what do you stand for? Why should I engage with you? I think it's really difficult when you approach the subject from yourself, because I think most of us <laughs> feel quite ordinary, you know, we just feel like normal people. But I think it might help to actually come from the client to say, the moment the client engages with us, how do we want them to feel about us? How do we want them to find us? How do we want them to feel when they come through the door? How do we want them to feel when they call us? What do we want the experience to be? How do we want them to perceive us? I think when we look at us through the client's eyes and through the client's experience, then maybe it becomes easier to work out what we want to stand for. Spot on. Spot on. The client needs to be at the start, the center and the end of everything. So you're absolutely right. If you don't start with the client in mind, your reason for getting out of bed might be intrinsic. I love to win. I want everything, you know, whatever that intrinsic sense is, but it's how that then relates to the problem you're solving for somebody else that gives you a business purpose. So invariably with, with the client where I start with companies when we're actually looking at this, and you may have heard the term building client personas, what that's about is looking at everyone's decision-making funnel. So everyone has a decision-making funnel. Me buying a coffee on the way here this morning, I went through a decision-making funnel and we go through those funnels, whether it's something small like a coffee or big, like where am I going to put my future asset and wealth creation? So at the very top of that funnel, we're all troubled by something. So something's bothering us. So I'll use estate planning as, as the example here. So at the very top of that decision-making funnel, we are troubled by the fact that we may have built up assets over time and what will happen to those when we die. In fact, what will happen to those if we divorce? So that idea of this wealth of assets and what's going to happen with them, that's troubling us. Then we start to slide down the funnel into what we call in business terms being in category. What that means is that effectively you start to go, who's going to help me solve this thing that's troubling me, this problem? Am I going to go to my accountant? Am I going to go to my financial planner? Am I going to go to a law firm? Am I going to do it myself? Go to Australia Post and buy a will kit. Am I going to look at an online platform? I've heard of these ones that are around. Oh, there's, there's one called Yodel, for instance. So... Then we're in category. Then we start to evaluate the options. So if we go, I'm going to go to my accountant because I trust this person. I've been dealing with them. They understand where these assets have come from because they've helped me build this, this wealth that I have. So I'm then looking at my accountant, but I may have heard of other accountants that do nice work in this space, or I've got a mate who's had an estate plan. So I'm comparing the offers. I'm, I'm comparing accountants Or I might be comparing an accountant with my fin planner saying, who do I feel better about? That idea of feeling, who do I feel is better going to solve my problem? Then we evaluate the offer. So we speak to our accountant. They say, sure, I can work with you on that. We'll need a lawyer or I use Yodel. We can, we can use that. So they'll put an offer in front of you. You evaluate the offer and you make your decision. If the accountant is 
smart about this entire process from their side of that decision-making funnel, they're thinking constantly of the answers to three questions. What's the problem my prospect or client has? What's the solution they want? And why are they going to buy it from me? You answer those three things, you're going to win business and you're going to retain business and you're going to organically grow the business that you have. No secrets. It is you're going to make much greater margin on growing existing clients than constantly be out in the market trying to acquire new ones. That, that makes sense. So that concept of the client being at the heart of your business, you, you're right, makes the conversation about why am I doing this easier because you think, well, why am I doing this for you? What's the problem I'm solving for you? It then means when the client's interacting with you and it's everything from, like I said, the minute you get to reception and even before that, the minute you look at a website, I spend my life having this conversation, your client does not care how clever you are. They don't care what widgets you've got. They don't even care what products and services you offer. They just want you to fix a problem for them. So if you have a website that has 14 different navigation points, has hundreds of pages of content, all about how clever you are, and no doubt you are very clever, you will lose them. All they want to do is come to your website page or pages, depending on on where they're coming to you from, and go, "Uh aha, they get me. They understand my problem. I think they can help me fix it. It's as simple as that. We're getting to the point now with a lot of businesses, their website, for instance, maybe a single landing page with a contact form, get in touch with us. We've just told you in two paragraphs that we can solve your problem. Get in touch with us. That's not going to work for everybody, but certainly for smaller businesses, certainly for practices where you may have a single one or two man band, you don't need more complexity in that because ultimately if you're good at what you do, what will set you apart in the race is really understanding your client problem, really understanding, having an insight into your client problem that nobody else does. If you just quickly walk through the decision-making funnel, I had the impression that there are one, two, three, four, five, six steps. The first one is problem identification. The client needs to realize that they have a problem. Yeah, well, even before they're, they're troubled by a problem. Yeah, so they've got something in their brain that's, I say, what's the keeping you awake at night thing? So yeah, they're troubled by the problem. They've identified it and gone, where's the solution going to be? That's a good thing. First of all, they need to identify the problem. And then second is the problem needs to become so big that they think I need to find a solution. Yeah. Because we, we all have provoke. lots of problems that we don't act on. Yeah, exactly. You know, so, like, so I need to do is, more exercise, yeah. but it doesn't mean I yeah, do it. No, you know? exactly. I've got to have a wedding d- date or something just to set me off. So exactly. So there's got to be... Um, so problem identification and then the desire... Provoking them to action. Exactly, yeah, provoking them to action. Mm. So basically desire to fix the problem. Mm-hmm. Then the third one is search for possible solutions. Mm-hmm. The fourth one is comparison of the possible solutions. Yeah. The fifth one is evaluating the different solutions. Mm-hmm. I, I actually, although that would be compare, wouldn't it? Well, no, they're evaluating, evaluating the options. So this is comparing the different, say, suppliers. I see just identifying what the differences are, but then in evaluate you actually decide, okay, this is actually more important to me than that. Yeah, yeah. So to use another example, I use this one a lot because it, it sort of very quickly helps people make sense. The cup of coffee is a great one, right? So on my way here today and I'm thinking, thirsty, thirsty, Good. definitely thirsty. First of all, number one problem I'm, identification. Yeah, I'm troubled by something and I'm like, I'm thirsty. So then secondly, I'm going, do I want water? 
Do I want a glass of wine? Do I want a caffeine hit? That's already number three, search for possible solutions. Number two is the decision, okay, I'm going to do something. I'm going to get a drink. Yeah, yeah, because I'm, I'm thirsty enough. I'm provoked to action. Then I look at the Resolution. different alternatives. Then you compare them and, and work then out I what go, the differences yeah, are. Yeah, and then I go, actually, I really want a caffeine hit. So mm. what are my options there? I can walk by a cafe. I can come to the library here. I can get cold press. I can get hot coffee. You know, what can I get? Then I see an outlet that sells Campos, one of my favourite beans. So I then go, right, I really want to go to that place because they sell the bean that I like. And then I'm sitting there going, of all the, the offers they've got, so they've got a long macchiato, an espresso, a, a whatever, I'm now going to evaluate those and make a decision, yes, I want a long black with a jug of hot milk on the side. So my action is then I pay. So that's a basic funnel and it's called a sales funnel, it's called a a marketing funnel, it's called a decision-making funnel. I call it a decision-making funnel because... It can apply to everything. Yeah, and if you just think of it as a sales funnel, you're then forgetting that that existing client who's already gone through this, what happens here? Back into decision-making funnel. So I've already sold them on their tax solutions. I've already sold them on wealth creation, but I'm now talking to them and they're, they're like making noise and think, you know, have you done something about protecting that wealth? Yeah. They're back up at the top of the decision-making funnel again. And I also think you don't have a client for life. They keep going through this funnel, mm. checking whether you are still the best solution for them. Uh, absolutely. And what could be troubling them is, am I getting the best out of the money I'm spending on accounting. So that could be what's troubling them. So you're absolutely right. You can never assume anything, but you will also never grow a business ever if you rely on going out and winning your business constantly, not in professional services, not in B2B. You need to be constantly solution selling. You're always looking to what's the solution you want to buy? Why are you going to buy it from me? You're going to buy it from me because I won't just come to you and say, oh, it's just tax you need. I'll come to you and say, we need to think about wealth creation. We need to think about asset protection. We need to think about blah, blah, blah. And then I'm constantly working you through this, but not with any intention to just rip a whole lot of money out of your pocket. And again, I never let companies sit and say to me, our purpose is to make money. You will make money if you're on purpose and you have a clear vision and you have a great set of values and you have a strong brand. You will make money. You won't make money if every day the only reason you get out of bed is to make money because your clients aren't going to buy it because there's no relationship with them. This mindset keeps your client. If you go through everything thinking of this decision-making funnel, I do it with clients when we're briefing on an event. I sit there and say, if the MC, even if the invite they get, but if the MC on the night or whoever's moderating or facilitating can't answer, why me, why here, why now, in 30 seconds for the people attending, you'll lose them. So even in that small thing, even in an event where they've gone, oh, I've noticed your event because I want to know more about trust funds or SMSFs, whatever it is. So I'm troubled by that. And you just happen to have sent me an invite. That's good luck. Yes, I'll attend. I'm still in that moment when I walk in, I'm still making a decision about whether I'm going to engage with you. So this Whether is, I stay. Exactly. So this is why you've got to stand for something and you've got to let people know what you stand for. You think about it and think, why here? Why me? Why now? 
if you answer those questions for that person, you're standing for something. You're saying you need to be here now because I am the smartest person in the room when it comes to SMSFs. So you're going to get a lot out of this half hour and you'll get some PDs, you know, CBD points. So that cycle is, I think, critical from a business development perspective. It's critical from an organisational perspective. And then for us as marketers and communicators, we're looking at every touch point in that funnel and saying, how can we help your business reach those people at as many stages as possible in that decision-making funnel? So we'll map out for companies, where's marketing and communications going to sit in the funnel? So if they've got a strong sales force, we will not sit as heavily at the bottom of the decision-making funnel because their sales force has swung into action by then and they're closely monitoring this one-to-one sale that they're now in. We'll work at the top and we'll be provoking people. I'll be out there looking. That's headlines in content, everything to provoke them. I want to scratch that itch and say, hey, aren't you troubled by this? Aren't you troubled by this? If you're not, you should be. Aren't you troubled by this? So when they start to go, I am troubled by that. Wow, I better start to think about some solutions. My Thing being, I want to bring them down into our part of the funnel, not the competitors. So I don't see that thinking happening very often, not in small and not in mid-market businesses, not as much as I'd like to see. Business accounting practices. Accounting practices, professional services, B2B, you know, B2B is my, my space. So, you know, that kind of very structured way of thinking about things it takes all the mystery out of it you're not throwing a whole lot of information out there hoping some of it sticks because you're sending it out for a particular purpose to a particular person who's in a particular state of mind and once you start to do that it makes all that other the marketing stuff quite easy because you think am I troubling someone am I provoking them or am I giving them options to consider is there a call to action here for them you start to answer all those questions keeping the customer at the heart of it all so So at the end of every blog post, sorry, this sounds very lame now, Mm. but so at the end of every blog post, you should have a call to action, for example. Absolutely. Just attended a really interesting LinkedIn masterclass, you know, to challenge the way I'm thinking about things. And it's even getting to the point now where your call to action may be a question you pose to the reader. So you'll notice on a lot of LinkedIn posts now, uh, there's a guy called Gary Vaynerchuk, who I'm a massive fan of, love Gary. And he is very big on this. He will ask a question. So I'm thinking this, this, and this. What do you think? What's bothering you about this? Is this the way you do things? One of his latest rants was against business advisors. You know, all these people who are calling themselves business advisors who actually haven't run successful businesses. He's like, instead of putting yourself out there to advise people on running a successful business, why don't you share some of your learnings about what hasn't worked for you? Do you agree? So that's the call to action. But every single piece of content, not just a blog post. So every email, every article, it doesn't have to be call me now, but there has to be something at the end of that article that says, think about this and do something with it or it's just more content. I know we're going to talk about content, but there is such a mass of content in the world right now. If yours doesn't stick out, if it's not relevant, if it's not compelling, and if it doesn't have a reason for somebody to read it and action it, it'll get lost. It'll get lost. 
So, and there's no secret sauce. I've not found a silver bullet. I wish I had one because I would package it and sell it. But I do know everything's got to have a call to action. It is our number one rule with any work that comes out from my clients, certainly. CTA, call to action. CTA, yep. Yeah. You listed three questions before and I wanted mm. to ask you something about it. You said the, the client really comes with three questions in their mind. The first one is, what's the problem? Well, you phrased it as the client. You said, what's their problem? What's the solution they want? And why do they want it from me? Or why should they buy it from me? Mm. And what I thought was very interesting was that you said, What's the solution they want? You didn't say, what's the solution I offer? You said, what's the solution they want? And I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, good pickup. And this goes back to my point, the client doesn't care how clever you are. Websites are a good example because they're visual and most people can relate to them. So if you go to a website, I've got one particular client in mind, I'm not going to name them, but we're about to redevelop their site for this very reason. They do a lot of really great stuff. They're in industrial sector. So they do a lot of really good stuff. They hire a lot of very, very good people to do work for them. And it's across a really wide array of industries and services. Their current website has a headline banner with loads and loads of images that flick through every single one of all of the things they do. And it actually gives you a headache to look at. So what they're expecting is that the prospect or customer is going to come to that site and go, hmm, let me search amongst all those wonderful images and all those wonderful services to find the thing I want. That is not the way we behave when we go to a website. If we're searching for something, we've usually already typed a question in. So I want this particular service or how do I fix this? That's the type of thing we'll we'll go to a browser and, and type in. So when you land on a website, you just want them to answer that. That's all you want them to do. And it's about having that clear statement up front, front and what we call, you know, in old printing terms, top of the fold. So sitting right square on your screen saying, this is what we stand for and we understand your problem. Here's the solution we have for your problem. And because we've said this is what we stand for, you're sitting there going, oh, one, they get me. And secondly, I get them. And that's why I'm going to buy it from them. So you've got to keep that message really clear and really, really simple. And you've got to be consistently plugging away at it, but always thinking of of what solution do they want. And a lot and, of people will say... the emphasis is on they. What they solution want. do yeah, they want? Yeah, it's not up to me to tell them. So even if you're in a sales meeting or a pitch... You will know how to get to that solution, but it's about what solution they want. Yeah, and people sort of say, but it's up to me to give them advice. I'm like, yeah, but how do you know how to craft the advice if you don't know, understand the problem and what they're thinking they need to fix it? So it's that thing around pain points. So you'll hear that term used a lot, but it really is what's that What's that client pain point and how do they think it needs to be addressed? Actually, can I interrupt you yes. first? Just coming back to the website you just discussed, yeah, yeah. what you're basically proposing is landing pages, to have landing pages for different problems and then to have those landing pages exactly tailored to that problem and the possible solutions of that problem. Um, Because if yeah. you, uh, let's use an accountant as an example, if you do SMSF, you do business, you do wealth, mm. you can't have a homepage that goes exactly, that addresses exactly their problem. So you need landing pages that you then 
push out into the world that address those specific problems like mm. estate planning, SMSF or the trustee just died, yeah. etc. You can make life very complex for yourself. If you start to go into as a business, and again, businesses do this a lot, so it's a really good question. If you go in trying to address every single permutation of the problem a client has as a business with all the services that you offer and you start to break things down individually, you're going to end up with potentially a lot of landing pages or a big navigation on your website, lots of menus and lots of content. So you're actually circling back and creating the same problem for the client, which is I just simply want to get to where I want to go. So smaller business that's got, so even my business, my site is effectively a landing page. You know, it's it's pretty much a single scrolling page of, of content because just of the way my business is structured and, and also the problem at the core of all of my clients' issues is around their communication. So it's a, a fairly sort of simple thing in terms of it's a problem. It may be complex in the way it gets understood, but at the heart of every issue my clients have communication is in the mix and that's where I come in. So in that case, a single landing page for a company can work. We're about to launch a new offer to the market that's been developed by a client, but it sits separate to their business. That will come out as a landing page because it then docks into a secure portal where the smarts of the business sits behind. We just need to enunciate very clearly on that landing page. This is the problem you have. This is how we solve it. Click here very simple direct response type thing. With something like an accounting firm, you need to, I guess, elevate and say for anyone thinking of coming to an accounting firm or a fin planner or going to a professional services. So they've identified they need maybe a business advisor because I have this stuff. I have a business, I've got assets, I've got kids, I've got a new partner, whatever, there's been a change in my life somewhere or I'm going into a new phase of my life in business, I need professional advice. That's probably more where you look, that's the problem that that client has. Now then it may be related to specific needs, but as a firm you want to present at the get-go, we understand what, what a change in your life means from a financial perspective and here are the various ways we might assist you and that's where you start to direct them through to specific content around that specific area. And the goal that I would set a web developer in that environment and a designer, so we'll have a, a user experience designer, we'll have a user interface designer, is UX and UI. UX and UI, yep. I want as a KPI for this site that that prospect or client can get from homepage to relevant content one click. So that's our KPI. We're not sending them different landing pages, but we're saying we're going to serve up a solution to you quickly. And within that solution, you'll go, okay, I specifically want to look at tax. Bang. I'm then looking at your firm's offer around tax solutions, not products, tax solutions that are relevant to me. Does that kind of answer that question? Yeah, because I think, you know, one of the things, it's a favourite quote of mine from Marco Pierre White is, consistency comes out of simplicity. So you do this 
do simple things well and you do them again and again and again, you'll create consistency. And from a marketing perspective, consistency means a single powerful message or offer that's coming to me as a prospect that I can't ignore. So with your website example, you say, as a firm, we understand what this stage of your life means like and this stage of your business means like, or we understand what business means to you. You love it. We love it. We get it. And we have a whole lot of solutions that are going to make your love for business grow. You're not going to use that wording, but that's that's the feeling as a brand we want people to get from us. So then we're consistent about that. And then we consistently share that from a taxation perspective, there's a, there's a lot of integrity in our tax solutions. From a state planning perspective, there's a lot of integrity in the partners that we use to develop estate plans for our clients. So you're consistently putting that very simple, clear message through that we have integrity in the solutions we offer because we understand the beauty of business. We understand you love business and you want to get on with your business. So trust us with these robust solutions to back you up on that and not get in your way. You go off and do what you want to do. That's not going to work for every accounting firm, but that's just an example. Yeah, so that's again why you want to keep your offer and your marketing and everything simple so that, again, you've got a very clean, crisp website. You don't want hundreds of pages of content because you just want to keep it simple and deliver that message consistently through that sort of simple. And the message is basically, it comes back to why should I engage with you? Yeah, why should I do business with you? And don't forget, part of this is your staff. So why should why should they work for you? Why are they getting out of bed every day? And a lot of reports around this, but one of the figures that stayed in my mind over the last few years is that anywhere up to two-thirds of staff don't know why they come to work. They don't know why they're there. They don't understand your business plan. They don't understand your purpose. They don't have any clue what the values of the business are, which means they don't know how to behave which means they then don't know how to communicate that to clients. So so all of that that we're talking about, if your one of your values is that your relationships with your clients need to have integrity, honesty, that the client comes first, if that's sort of one of the values of your business, if your staff don't know that, so if they don't behave with integrity, if they put the client last, if they don't return phone calls, they're breaking your connection to the client immediately. So they need to see all this in action as well. So it's the, the client understanding that this is what you stand for. These are your values. This is your purpose. This is your vision as a business. And this is how you're using all of that to solve my problem. And the staff need to see that as well. Mm. So they know how to behave. Yes. I think everybody knows that they need to act with integrity. I think everybody mm. knows that they need to act with honesty. I think what it comes down to are very clear action steps like return phone calls within an hour or return emails within a business day. I think these very clear action steps, they are not clear, but I think every staff will know that they expect it to act with integrity and honesty. They are. You know, and, you'd you'd and, hope that people are employing for that as well. But, and and but, also if an accounting firm says our values are integrity and honesty, it feels empty because, of course, everybody hmm. will act with integrity and honesty. That's how we, you know, that's how we relate with each other. Unless somebody proves otherwise, we yeah. assume that they act with integrity and honesty, unless, of course, they are use car salesman or something or <laughs> real estate <laughs> agent. My profession's been accused of not acting with integrity and honesty. It, it's almost like saying, if you come to our accounting practice, we will not kill you. 
Mm. You know, it's something like this that is just blatantly obvious. Yeah, it's it's interesting because sometimes yeah, people say to me, oh, isn't that self-evident? Why do we need to enunciate that? And I'm not talking about putting values up on the toilet walls and walls of offices, which I disagree with violently. If you do have to have it in front of you like that, why have you employed these people? What are they there to do? But I think sometimes going back and saying these are the things that we regard as being vital to the way we behave They may not be in your top three values, but I think if they're not encapsulated in the values of the business because they're part of the values of the profession that you are part of, I think sometimes these things, having them stated just makes that message clear that these are things we regard as important, not just assumptions. Yes. So and maybe again, if it you could be about it acting as integrity again, don't forget these values about your internal dealings as well. So behaving yeah. in a way that makes a workplace safe. I don't know if you've seen, but the recent um, there's been some recent research about the amount of harassment, bullying and discrimination that's going on in law firms around the world, of which Australia has got a, a you know, in terms of the report that I saw, has scored particularly badly that's not behaving with integrity. If you're not treating your colleagues in a way that is fair, is treating them with dignity so that they feel safe to go to work, that's not behaving with integrity. So maybe stating some of these things in an obvious way is not, yeah. not going to hurt. And Melissa, I actually mm. think once you drill down, you come to crossways where you have to go one way or another. Mm. You know, typical examples in an accounting firm is how do we handle entertainment expenses? How tough are we on it? Because mm. you will always get clients who try to push the boundary and get more entertainment expenses through, etc. Or with car-related expenses, tra mm. travel expenses, etc. It's a constant decision. It's a constant crossroad about how far do you let the client lead you astray or, or not. Mm. And so, yes, in that case, actually, honesty, integrity do mean more once you start drilling, yeah. drilling down. And if you think about the circle right back to why is a brand of any use, any value or any importance to professional firms, to accounting firms, part of your brand is your set of values. And your values are basically a decision-making matrix. So one of the examples I use a lot is a company with one of the strongest visions you're ever going to get, and it's make people happy. That vision has been in place, I think, for decades. Somebody will check and tell me I'm wrong, but I think it's for decades. And you know when you deal with that company that you're going to be entertained. You're going to love the way you feel when you're interacting with that brand The values for staff, particularly in terms of decision-making, because this particular company runs theme parks, etc., is if it's make people happy, then their number one value is associated with that. So if they're making a decision, you've got to be safe to be happy. So if they're making a decision, then I think their first value may be safety, but they do it in order of priority. So when you have to, you're faced with a situation, you have to make decisions, the values dictate the decisions that you make. So is someone safe? Are they happy? And whatever else the values of that business are, and that's going to be my hierarchy of decisions. So that brand is Disney. And you can't think of Disney without you've done it yourself. You start to smile, right? It's Disney. And, and that is their vision. They just want to make people happy. It's so simple. A lot of those values, like safety, of course, it's around theme parks. Safety is obvious. But when you've got a staff member faced with a situation on the day, in the moment, and they've got to make decisions, having that very clearly stated exactly like you're talking about with entertainment expenses and cars, etc. if accountants are making decisions 
with their clients or guiding their clients through that if those things like integrity, honesty, ethics, etc., are stated in their value framework somewhere, it's a it's a non-starter. They just go, well, I'm sorry, the way we operate here is these things have to be put to one side or they have to be enunciated clearly or we simply can't claim for those. And if you have an issue with that, you might need to rethink our relationship. That's brave and courageous. Purpose of the organisation, the vision of the organisation, the values, the brand should all back that up. And I have personally left accounting firms because I don't believe in their integrity, which left me feeling like I couldn't trust them, which left me feeling vulnerable. That's not the way I want to feel about a brand. So it comes back to what's the feeling people have when they interact with you and you can win people because of it, but you can lose clients because of it as well. So some of those ingredients, I read recently somebody calling a brand an operating system for your business. And I loved that because there is a very clear line between purpose values, vision, and then your brand behaviors and how you're going to operate according to those. So it it becomes almost a recipe for how your business is going to function. Is understanding your purpose going to help you stand out from everybody else? Isn't everybody's purpose the same? Which is, again, a really good good question. And I think it's particularly hard for small to medium-sized accountants because the big guys, they have they have the marketing department, they have their brand advisors, etc. But it's really hard for the little guys to, to work this out. Yeah, yeah, no, it, you know, and they're not all, and nor should they go and pay even a strategist like me to come in and, and work with them. You know, I would say, and this will segue into the strategy side, it doesn't matter the size of your business. You've started it for a reason. So why did you start it? Where do you want to see it in a whatever time frame, two, five, ten years time? And ideally that end point is not what I do hear from quite a few firms, which is I'm just waiting for my last client to retire. <laughs> to me it just seems really demotivating. So But that's the exception. So, Most accountants. Yeah, I, I hope so. I've done a lot of insights and and there's a few out there, especially very small ones, which are, are relying on a legacy clients and Yeah, and, and they are probably close to retirement and yeah very different on, on the way out very anyway different. but we're we are more talking about accountants who are on the go yeah. innovating really wanting to grow their practice yeah and trying to work this out so i think um you know the the couple of ingredients are it may it may not necessarily be that the reason you're in business is radically different from anyone else's but it's how you crystallize that How do you put that in one or two sentences, your elevator pitch? How do you then translate that to the customer problem, what the solution is that they're looking for, and how you deliver it better than anyone else? And if you're in business and you can't think of a reason that you're able to do something better than someone else, I would question where you're really going and, again, what's driving you every day. And I think... What has to be acknowledged, though, is the accounting profession, like many others in professional services, is facing unbelievable competitive pressure. And it's coming from places that even five years ago, it may not have. have. So you've got, which again, has been talked about for a long time, the offshoring and outsourcing of some components of practice. You've got the tech disruptors that are out in, in the space. You've got 
businesses like Zero, which may not necessarily be competing with you, but are changing the framework that your clients are operating within. And and I know, again, even in my business, my bookkeeping is done by my virtual assistant in combo with me. So my accountant has a very different role for me now than he or she would have four or five years ago, because we do DIY a fair amount and they're there to be the responsible person to guide us through the bigger decisions. So tech disruption is is changing that relationship. You've got the DIY mentality of, well, just set up my own business. I don't I don't need to go to an Axis or now Infinity or anyone else to, to do that. I'll just do it myself or I'll just use a template. That'll work. And that's hindering business within accounting firms. It's certainly causing problems for clients who are setting structures up that they don't really understand. You've got services that are increasingly commoditized. You've got that always fight to the bottom, you know, in terms of people are racing to the bottom in terms of fees and packaging and all sorts of things. So those competitive pressures are significant. And I'm not trying to diminish those and say, look, if you, you know, say that this is why I get out of bed every day, people are going to come flocking to your business. But appreciating those thinking about how your service can deal with those, but then also what will set you apart is that feeling people have when they come to you, that feeling people have from the minute they hit your website, that feeling people have from the minute they come and speak to a receptionist, have a phone call returned in 24 hours or less. I've got one client who are in the financial services sector their business development and salespeople have to return within an hour. The phone, they are on it straight away. They have relationships with people. The clients have not seen half of these guys ever necessarily in person, but they feel they have a relationship with that business. And they're in an area where human beings are leaving that particular sector. So many clients don't deal with people and they love it. And I survey these clients regularly. They love it. They love the fact that that phone call gets returned. They're not waiting for an email from, you know, accounts at blah, blah, blah to come back to them. So how quickly do they return phone calls? Oh, sometimes their CRM system is so efficient that literally the minute a call comes in, if and they're a small business, so the sales guys are sitting where the front of house is. So if that call comes in and the salesperson is sitting there and they've got a sales force of two effectively nationally, they will take the call straight away. If for whatever reason they're traveling or they can't, an alert comes straight into the CRM so that information gets entered and then an alert comes up on screen and then they're on it. Do you know which CRM they use, Salesforce? They have their own. So they've really invested in tech and they've really invested in... So they built their own CRM CRM over years. That would have cost them a million, at least half a million. Well, again, it's a 20-year-old business, so Mm. it's grown with them. But the functionality of that is one point. So, yes, but it's the behaviour. It's They value that personal relationship so much that they'll do anything to keep it, track it down, chase it and keep it. So they'll go to client seminars, they'll go to client events, they'll, they, you know, do go out and, you know, we run connector events with them, which is a one plus one thing in that they, we invite guests that are clients of ours, but the deal is you walk in the door with a plus one who isn't a client of ours because you then get to meet us, they then get to meet us and we talk about topics that are hopefully relevant and compelling for everyone's businesses and and we will get some sales out of it. So, but that's, again, that's about the value, 
that they have in the personal relationships that they build, the value that they place on their relationships with their clients. It's so important to them as a business. That's what sets them apart. They're in a cookie cutter business. In terms of their product offering, there is it's Remind just me again, are they financial advisors? Financial services, but there's no secret in what they produce. It's the relationships they have with the client that sets them apart. So I think that's a really good example of, of somebody where you could go, ah, we're the same as everybody else. They're not. They've found the thing that, that sets them apart and we consistently go after that in terms of every piece of comms. So the call to action with them, so this is an interesting one, that personal side of things is so important. The calls to action for them are all about a person. Call a person, email a person, we'll get back to you. The team's here. That's all their calls to action are always related there. We always have a, a an individual feel to it because we really want to keep stressing that point that, that we're a bunch of people who do this work for you. We're not a tech company with that's faceless, nameless, with nobody so, there. So their call to action is not call us. The call to action is call Bob, call Scott. Yeah, it could be that or call our such and such, to, you know, call our production team or call our marketing team or whatever it is. But it's very much about there is a group of individuals or there is an individual here ready for your call and you will be answered and you will get a response. So, yeah, it's a very unique. And that came out of customer insights work. So that to go right back, that came out to us doing some research, interviewing clients and prospective clients and understanding what the problem was. And the problem for them was that they were working in this area, ordering products and things from companies where they couldn't be sure of the integrity of them and they didn't know who to call and ask. So the fact that there were people there ready to check things for them, help them out with problems, be on the phone for them, that was the solution they were looking for. So we did that work probably six years ago and it hasn't let us down at all and is still very much a part of their brand message. So I think that's a really good example of a highly competitive sector where you can carve out something unique for yourself that's not necessarily about the same services that everyone else offers. Welcome back. So your brand is the feeling clients get when they deal with you. And talking about branding and purpose, I have to quickly talk to you about something else. And that is the voiceover we do at the start. You are listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. This doesn't really fit anymore. Yes, you need to be across technical topics. You need to know what changed and how this impacts your clients, etc. And that is an important part of Text Talks. But you also want to grow. You want to grow your practice. And I'm hoping that together we can work this out, learn from others, learn from each other. And so we need a new voiceover, but I don't have it yet. I just wanted to let you know that I know it doesn't really fit the bill. It needs to change because it doesn't really reflect anymore what we are doing together. Just give me a few more weeks. In the next episode, episode 237, Melissa Donnelly will talk about marketing strategy and more importantly, it's execution because a strategy is not worth the paper it's written on if it's not executed. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode. <music>